one of the ongoing disagreements that Bethany and I have is how frequently a person should listen to the soundtrack of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera. If you ask me, I think it should be once a day. Bethany would probably tell you once in a lifetime. I exaggerate slightly, but I do know that in my trips to OHSU in the past couple of months, I can listen to it once on the way down and once on the way back, and it works out just right. The point is I enjoy the music immensely. In terms of storylines, there are other musicals that I would prefer, but in terms of music, I think that sets the standard for all other musicals. In fact, I've considered even adopting the title track the Phantom of the Opera, is my own theme song for my own life. And the reason for that is because the Phantom, who has had his face covered by a mask because of being disfigured, sings one sign, or actually somebody sings one, one line about him, and it is, those who have seen your face draw back in fear. Interpret that however you want. <laughs> the point is... The book comes from a 1910 novel by Gaston Larue, and the story centers around the Phantom, who, when appearing in public, only does so with a mask. He's a brilliant person, known for some things that he could have accomplished, but with a facial deformity, that deformity was used against him. And so his story is that he was caged and carried around from place to place as part of a fair, where people either laughed and mocked him, or they were scared of him. He now rules the opera house in the story, though silently, and he does so through fear, never actually revealing himself. He actually lives below the opera house. In the end, he competes with a man by the name of Raoul, and they do so for the, one of the ballet girls, a girl by the name of Christine Daae. He captures them both in the end, but then being moved by her compassion and by her love, he releases them both. And what he does in that moment is basically commits himself to a life destined to be lived alone. The movie version, not the actual play, but the movie version ends with the credits scrolling on the screen, and they've added a song, a song titled Learn to be Lonely. The words include phrases like this, who will be there for you, comfort and care for you. Learn to be lonely, learn to be your one companion. The last two lines simply say, learn to be lonely. Life can be lived Life can be loved alone. This is where theology matters. This is where what you believe about God impacts how you live or don't live for God. The song is actually quite beautiful. The words can evoke sentiments and emotions. They may even cause a person to ponder more deeply the things of life. But that song lacks a biblical anthropology. 
meaning it lacks a biblical understanding of the study of man and humanity. It doesn't understand biblically how God has created people and what he's destined them for. We see from scripture that God has created humanity not for isolation, but for relationship. Proverbs 18.1 reads, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Whoever isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. Even in the beginning in creating man, God then creates woman so that they could exist together. It stands also to reason that if God said to love one another, then somehow we must have a relationship with one another. We can't exist alone and fulfill that command, love one another. To do so requires that a relationship of some sort must exist. And so in the upcoming weeks, it is this truth that we plan to explore. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. And I want to bring to you a message I have titled, a series I've titled, Precepts for Christian Relationships. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Verse 18, I, Paul, I write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. So we come to this epilogue of Paul's letter, this epilogue to the Colossians. And what we read is a list of people. It's such a long list, including various people from various walks, from various backgrounds, and even various regions. But such a list is representative of the extensive nature of Paul's ministry. 
And it tells us just how far God has allowed both his influence and impact to reach. Because it's just names and people with a couple of final instructions here and there, usually about tasks even. It's easy for us to quickly read over these verses, to read over the final 11 verses of Colossians and check off another box in our reading of the Bible. We've now completed one book out of 66. But if we look at the people here, we gain insight not just to Paul's relationships, but we begin to see how the gospel impacts relationships. And what this list becomes then is it's not just a list of names. It's a list of precepts that guide believers and their relationships with one another. This morning we begin by looking at two names on those lists in the first three verses, verses 7 through 9. And here we find the first precept of Christian relationships. The Christians are connected through Christ. And ultimately what we'll see is that that connection with Christ then defines our connection with one another. And so we begin to look at our text and the first person that Paul introduces us to is Tychicus. And I want you to note how he describes Tychicus here in verse 7. As a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. The two of them have a long history together. And from their relationship, what I want you to learn is two points, beginning with that believers serve together for Christ. One who submits to the lordship of Christ commits to labor for Christ. One who submits to the lordship of Christ commits to labor for Christ. On one side, no individual is permitted to commit to Christ but do so with the stipulation, but I won't commit to toiling for Christ. On the other side, though, neither is a person qualified to serve Christ if they don't first submit to Christ. The two, submission and service, they are united. They cannot be divided. It is upon submission to Christ, then, that a person immediately commits to their first and and really the most fundamental act of service, participation in the Great Commission, make disciples. We're uncertain how or, or even when or where Paul and Tychicus met, but by now they have served together for quite some time, each one of them using their gifts and their calling to work together for the fulfillment of this Great Commission. We first met Tychicus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 4, it's part of that contingent of people that are traveling with Paul on his third missionary journey. And they go from Ephesus to Greece. And eventually what they do is arrive in Jerusalem and they present to Jerusalem this offering that has been entrusted to their care. The reason we read such a long passage this morning in our scripture reading from Acts 19 and Acts 20 is because it sets the stage for what we're going to read in these final verses of Colossians. It is in that passage that we first learn of the very people that we're going to read about. And so we're going to come back to this verse multiple times. And so it's here in Acts 20, verse 4, that we first see Tychicus. 
Taiga Jesus' name means fortuitous or fortunate. He's from that region of the world where the Colossians are. He's from the very area where Paul is writing letters to, Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians, and even the letters to, to the Laodiceans that are represented here. He's already known in Asia Minor. And so it makes Paul, sense then that Paul would send Tychicus, that he would be the ones that would bear these letters to the people. He already knows them. He also takes the letters to the other churches. We know from, from here, from Colossians, that he takes the letter to the Laodiceans. And in Ephesians 6.21, we know that he also carried that letter to the Ephesians. It's a little bit important that we understand some history here. The letter to Colossians is written by Paul. It's written from prison while he is in Rome. This imprisonment is described in great detail in in the final chapters of Acts, Acts 27 and Acts 28. And it occurs roughly around the year A.D. 62. So Christ has been crucified and resurrected by about 30 years, give or take. But Paul has a second imprisonment. Not just this one in A.D. 62, but we know from the historian Eusebius that Paul was imprisoned later because he writes of Paul's death around A.D. 68. So you have about six years. This is important because here in A.D. 62, Tychicus is with Paul in Rome as he writes the letters to Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon even. He's even dispatched to carry some of those letters. Six years later then, in AD 68, nearing Paul's death, Paul is imprisoned once again in Rome. And Paul writes three more letters. Letters that we now refer to as the pastoral epistles. Two letters to Timothy and one to Titus. And guess who's still with Paul? Tychicus. We know that because shortly before Paul's death, he he writes in his letter to Titus, who's in Crete, and says, I have sent Tychicus to you. (coughs) And then in the letter to Timothy, in the second letter, he mentions that he sent Tychicus also to Ephesus. At minimum, then, Paul and Tychicus served together for about 10 years, at least, That not only gives us background to their relationship, but it becomes very crucial to a point that we'll see in a little bit. Notice how Paul describes Tychicus in our text. In Colossians 4, verse 7, he he uses three phrases. First, he's a fellow brother. That is to say that he has trusted the work of Christ as a sufficient work to pay for the penalty of his sins. And now he has been adopted by God, the Father. Adopted by God and is now part of the family of God, so that Tychicus is now a brother to anyone else who has been adopted into that family, meaning he's a brother to any believer. Remember once again that one of the prerequisites of serving Christ is to trust Christ. It means to have faith in who he is. If we don't trust Christ, how could we ever serve Christ? And so clearly that's what's happened here. Tychicus has has long ago trusted Christ, and now he is serving him. 
Notice also he describes him as a faithful minister. At this point in Colossians, at least two years, Tychicus has been with Paul. And so that's sufficient time for Paul to be able to observe Tychicus and observe his work and know him well enough to not just call him a minister, to not just say he's doing the work of the Lord, he's attending to the spiritual needs of people, but that's a sufficient length of time for him to be able to say he is a faithful minister. He is fulfilling his calling and fulfilling it well. And finally, he's called a fellow servant. Paul uses that term sparingly. In Colossians, it's reserved for two people, Tychicus and Epaphras. And it simply means to identify their loyal service to Christ. They are fellow servants. Not servants of Paul, but servants of Christ. This is the goal of the Christian life. To be a fellow, faithful servant of Christ. Paul says as much to the Corinthians, saying, this is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. To have fellow servants indicates there are at least two people present. But in our case, Paul lists no less than 12 people in these closing verses. Ministry is not a solo endeavor. It cannot, it should not be done alone. It requires the active participation of all believers who will willingly use their gifts and the way the Lord has equipped them together for the purposes of the Great Commission. Again, to make disciples. Some may teach. Some may exhort. Some may serve. Each one does so, though, in order to contribute to that one call of Christ to make disciples. Notice the relationship between the two here. For the sake of providing direction, Paul clearly is exercising a level of leadership and direction to Tychicus because he's the one sending Tychicus. But once again, notice they are fellow servants. It seems that they're content in their roles just as the Lord has called them. They're united then by their desire to fulfill the Lord's work according to those roles. They're not competing with one another for a higher position. They're not clashing with one another for greater influence. And they're not asserting their own agenda to get their own way. This is illustrated by a man by the name of Joshua Chamberlain. Chamberlain was a respected soldier in U.S. history, though few probably know who he is. He was a professor of rhetoric and a professor of religion. He was wounded six times in battle, and four of those times he was cited for his bravery. At one point, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor for his command of the 20th Regiment of Maine Volunteers at Gettysburg on July 2nd, 1863. Yet, Joshua Chamberlain was only a colonel, not a general. I point that out because... Chamberlain had to follow just as many orders as he gave. He may give his men orders, but he had to follow orders from the general. This is what we see with Paul and Tychicus. This is how ministry should work, each fulfilling his calling. And and this is what we see here. 
Paul's trying to fulfill the Lord's orders to go make disciples, primarily as an apostle. And then we see here that Tychicus is simply just trying to aid Paul in that endeavor too, by serving Christ, by serving Paul. Believers do not struggle over one another, but they, they strive with one another. And so believers are connected through Christ, and because of that, they serve together for Christ. There's a second thing we can learn from their relationship, though. It's not found in our text. It's found in understanding who they are. I want you to note, second, that believers suffer together for Christ. James Dobson tells a story of Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking was an astrophysicist at Cambridge University. Some would have considered him the most intelligent man on Earth, at least when he was alive. He had advanced the theory of relativity farther than anybody had done since Albert Einstein. But Hawking was also afflicted with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, and eventually it would take his life. He had been confined to a wheelchair for, for years. He really couldn't do more than sit and think. He'd lost his ability to speak, and now he had to rely on others for even the tiniest things, to, to comb his hair or anything. Quoting from an Omni magazine article, it says he is too weak to write, feed himself, comb his hair, fix his glasses. All of this must be done for him. Yet this most dependent of all men has escaped invalid status. His personality shines through the messy details of his existence. Hawking said that before he became ill, he had very little interest in life. He called it himself a pointless existence, resulting from sheer boredom. He acknowledges he drank too much, he did very little work, and then he learned he had ALS. He wasn't expected to live more than two years. The ultimate effect of that diagnosis was shock, but it was also a positive experience because he claimed he was happier after he was afflicted compared to what he was before. How could we understand that? Well, Hawking himself provides an answer. He says, when one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one does have. Dobson states it another way. He says, contentment in life is determined in part by what a person anticipates from it. And to a man like Hawking, who thought he would soon die quickly, everything takes on meaning. A sunrise or a walk in a park or the laughter of children. And suddenly each small pleasure becomes precious. By contrast, those who believe life owes them a free ride are going to be discontent with even the finest gifts. But as Christians, we have no expectations of entitlement because we know what we deserved was what Christ received. This is really thinking that as sinners, we deserve nothing less than absolute condemnation by God. And as saints, we will receive nothing less than absolute rejection by society. Any blessing that we receive, any good we experience, is cherished as that, a blessing from the Lord. Because it's far beyond what we would expect or what we deserve. 
At the same time, any trial, any suffering, any persecution, it's endured. Because any adversity, even to the point of torture, it represents only a small portion of what we've earned and only a fraction of what Christ endured on our behalf. See, but our suffering is made easier because we have something that Christ didn't have, as odd as that sounds. As we go about the Great Commission, we expect to suffer. In fact, Peter warns of it in his letters. Jesus himself tells the disciples, you will be hated by all for my namesake. So how is the Great Commission accomplished in light of that? How is a Christian life lived in light of that? With the assurance of Christ's presence. While he issues the call to participate in this wonderful work to make disciples, remember that it comes with Christ's own assurance. He says, after issuing that command to make disciples, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There are times we may suffer because of Christ, but we will never suffer without Christ. There is something more, though, that we should consider about suffering. We suffer with fellow believers. While Christ was reviled and scorned, those who confessed him left him. They deserted him and left him all alone at his most needy moments. Even those who were his closest confidants left him so that he faced death and crucifixion alone. That's a sentiment that none of us will ever know. First, Christ has given us the Spirit. Second, he has given us one another. Fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters. So that even if we're physically separated and not in each other's presence, at the very least, we know that we're not without other believers who are appealing to the Lord through prayer on our behalf. Paul and Tychicus exemplify this principle, suffering together by personally enduring the trials of one another. Think about everything that Tychicus has been part of. At this point in our text, at the time of the writing of Colossians, Tychicus has been with Paul somewhere probably between five and seven years. And we find him in Acts 20 again on Paul's third missionary journey. It's likely that he was present in Acts 19 in the Ephesians, in Ephesus, when the riot broke out that we read of this morning. Later on, he survives a plot with Paul to be murdered by Jewish leaders in Acts 23. He has been with Paul at his arrest. He's gone through three trials with Paul, one before Felix, another before Festus, and, and the final one before Agrippa. And if Tychicus is with Paul at his arrest and now is with Paul at Rome, that means they probably traveled together on the same ship, the one that was succumbed to a storm and shipwrecked on Malta in Acts 27. Any sensible person probably would have cried out and said, enough. We couldn't blame him if he would walk away. Paul probably would blame him. But, <laughs> but that's not what Tychicus does. Tychicus remains to the point that six years later, they're still enduring trial and he's found at Paul's side again, again in prison at Rome. 
There's really only one reason that Tychicus could be willing to remain at Paul's side. And again, this is where theology matters. This is where belief impacts behavior and where doctrine determines duty. The reason is simply this. Tychicus trusted Christ so unreservedly that he is willing to serve him unconditionally. And in this case, that meant staying alongside Paul. It wasn't that he was serving Paul only. It was a matter of serving Christ. And so when it came time to suffer, certainly Tychicus must have agreed with Paul when Paul wrote earlier to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. How could they think such a thing? How could they believe that? Well, first, I would tell you that both Paul and Tychicus have their minds set on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3.1. But they know something that Peter has written about as well. Peter says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It causes us to rejoice that though we may experience hurt and hardship now, our position later there is already secured. We do well to recall the words of Christ himself in the midst of the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A commitment to Christ is defined by a willingness to suffer for Christ. And yet for believers, we have the privilege to suffer with fellow believers. And so because they're connected through Christ, believers suffer together for Christ. I want you to note third, that believers share experiences together for Christ. Believers share experiences together for Christ. Verse 7 says this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. And this verse 8 expands and says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. It's not uncommon for messengers to not only bring messages, but sometimes gifts from the letter writer or even supplies. I don't know if Paul sent any of that stuff. I, I suspect if he's able, he probably sent something, especially supplies just as a means to support fellow believers. What we do know is that Paul sends Tychicus, but Tychicus isn't a typical courier. He's a fellow minister. And at the very least, he's accompanied here by Onesimus. And now in verse 8, he's been instructed to give additional commentary on his letter. Some would speculate that perhaps Paul didn't want to put into writing certain details that were, were needed to be guarded, I guess, because of security. In light of what we know about people and even our understanding of how dangerous it was in Paul's time, that very well could be true. That's not an unreasonable assumption, but it's just that. It's an assumption. We do well to remember that possibility, but we can't allow it to be our primary factor in forming conclusions. And instead, what a greater importance is here is to remember that Paul's imprisonment actually had theological implications. For New Testament believers, it would have been very difficult to reconcile that 
Paul is being held captive. And yet at the same time, he's supposed to be serving a God who is sovereign. And how is he supposed to trust in Christ's sufficiency in this time? How does a God who has both authority and power over all things, who is definitely concerned about the fruitfulness of his word and his truth going out, how does he permit the confinement of the man who seems to be the most influential during his era for getting that word out? Paul's arrest has potential to shake their confidence, and it needed some explanation. So I have no doubt that Paul says, Tychus will tell you about my activities to explain some of that. What's not captured by our translation in English is the Greek text meaning, which would be more appropriately rendered, Tychicus will tell you of all my state. Because that's meant to convey the totality of the picture. It means that he's reporting on the general situation while sharing specific details about Paul's health, his expectations, like does he expect to be released, and even his overall condition. That task then conveys the closeness of the relationship between Paul and Tychicus because he's expecting that Tychicus will convey that report both accurately and meticulously. The expectation is that Tychicus will report everything as it is. He won't exaggerate the information, but he won't diminish it either. At the same time, what he shares will only be what Paul authorizes him to share. There's no room for excessive sharing here, or or gossip, as we might say. He's been sent there to give an update, and that's it. Notice that there's a purpose tied to this report, though. This is not merely a report of Paul's condition, but it's a means to accomplish something important. It says to encourage and to edify the body of Christ. That's my word, at least. Remember that back in Colossians 2, 2, Paul defined part of his ministry as encouraging fellow believers and assuring them of Christ. The report that Paul sends through Tychicus is crucial to accomplishing that ministry goal. It's fulfilling what he said he was going to do in verse 2 of chapter 2. Again, there's another concept not captured by our English text, and that's the idea of comfort. Within that word, the word encourage, It's a notion to comfort people. That's what the report is supposed to do. They're confused. They're questioning God, possibly, because of Paul's afflictions. They can instead, though, rejoice because the report is he's not really afflicted at all. It's it's much like the instructions to Israel in Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. That's what we see. The thing about Christian relationships is they share experiences together. But those experiences are for one purpose. They really are, in a sense, for Christ. And that's why I say believers share experiences together for Christ. And there's actually a reason for that. There's actually two reasons. First, when we share experiences, it's an opportunity to praise the Lord. Though there may be questions about how Paul's ministry is fruitful and impacts the gospel, the testimony is offered that actually, despite being confined, the gospel is still going forth. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul assures the Philippians of this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is a great encouragement. Because from our human perspective, Paul's circumstances would hinder the gospel. But the testimony and God's wisdom, this actually promotes the gospel. And that's worthy of praise. There's another reason. Sharing experiences gives us an opportunity to support one another. Knowledge about a person's condition informs our prayer for one another. It instructs our encouragement for one another. And it apprises of how we can support one another, serve one another. I'm trying to decide if I want to share a story. Bethany and I, years ago, suffered a miscarriage. We were fairly alone because we'd just been in Argentina for about a year at that time. We were navigating a healthcare system that we didn't know. It was one of the most difficult times, and we heard from nobody except our parents. When asked about it later, when we returned to a church, one person said, well, we, we pray for you. We don't need to talk to you to pray. He's not wrong. We can pray for one another without knowing specific details, but he missed an opportunity there. First, he missed an opportunity to pray specifically based on the circumstances we were going through. He missed an opportunity to encourage us in a very discouraging time. And he missed an opportunity to be encouraged himself by being able to participate in the Lord's work to build up the body of Christ. Being connected together through Christ means that believers share experiences together for the equipping and the edifying of the body of Christ quickly close out with with this last thing that I want you to note. Believers are sanctified together for Christ. Verse 9 introduces us to another person, Onesimus. Like Tychicus, Onesimus is described as a faithful and beloved brother. But Paul doesn't refer to him as a fellow servant. It's likely because Onesimus seems to be a new convert and he's not had the opportunity to serve like the others. But look at what the text says. And with him, with Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. We know little of Onesimus alone from this verse. Were it not for the letter to Philemon, we would have no information at all. From that letter, we know that Onesimus is a slave, a runaway slave at that And he's run away from his owner, who is Philemon. It happens to be that Philemon's house is where the church in Colossae meets. So it's likely that everyone in the church is aware of the situation. But Paul doesn't use the letter to address that situation. He writes a separate letter, the one to Philemon, in which he urges Philemon to lovingly receive Onesimus. I suspect because this is a private matter between the two of them, it would be both unnecessary and inappropriate to discuss it at length, with the entire church at least. And so, at this point, because it's not a church discipline issue, he's reserving that for a private letter. But he does share one vital piece of information with the Colossians. Apparently, something's changed in Onesimus' life. 
since he was last there at least. And Paul says, he is one of you. As in, he is now one of the Colossian believers. In the letter to Philemon, we know that because Onesimus is a changed man, he has sent Onesimus back to seek reconciliation. And in that same letter, he pleads with Philemon to grant that reconciliation. The punishment for a runaway slave is very severe. I won't get into the ethics of slavery because we've already established that or talked about that way back in Colossians 3.22 through 4.1. And if you want to know more, you can go back to the messages back on October 2nd. But in the meantime, for this era, when this letter was written, a runaway slave was a significant issue warranting death. This is no small matter. We can't expect that Philemon and Onesimus saw each other, hugged, and then greeted, and and everything was forgiven. The seriousness of this issue means there's probably a lot to work through. Likely, it, it took nothing less than the grace of God to overcome it. I'm sure it was hard. It was probably even hurtful at times as they tried to share with one another. But it's in those moments when people are willing to discuss the deeper issues that God provides the greatest growth. It is here when people are willing to let God's grace define their relationship that they are most sanctified. And so here's what you need to consider, though. This forgiveness, this reconciliation, this this sanctification that we see in their relationship, they're necessary. Onesimus and Philemon are part of the same church, but without that forgiveness and reconciliation, and thus that sanctification, they couldn't share their experiences together for Christ that we just discussed. They would not be willing to suffer together. They would not be able to serve together. They'd probably be angry with one another. They need reconciliation. An activity, it's reconciliation, is an activity of sanctification for all believers. Without being sanctified together for Christ, the body of Christ cannot minister for Christ. And so being connected together through Christ, believers are sanctified together for Christ. And so we ask, are the words I began with true? Learn to be lonely. Life can be lived. Life can be loved alone. The same musical, Phantom of the Opera, it actually contradicts itself with an earlier song. While suggesting that life can be lived, loved alone and lived alone, there's an earlier song that's titled Think of Me. The song is really part of a play within a play. And it's when Christine Daae is singing, and and she sings things like, Think of me. Remember me once in a while. Imagine me trying hard to put you from my mind. Those are words of relationship. (coughs) Actually, they're words of breakup, but there had to be a relationship at some point. The point is this. Relationship is what even the secular world craves. It's a secular play, a secular book. That's how the Lord has designed us. And the ultimate fulfillment of that need for relationship is fulfilled by the relationship with the Lord. But it's under that premise then that all other relationships exist. If we cannot live alone, then at least until we live in his presence, the relationships we have here 
should reflect the expectations of our relationship with him. Christians are connected through Christ. And that connection with Christ defines our connection with one another. Believers serve together. Believers suffer together. Believers share experiences together. And believers are sanctified together. And though we may gain much out of that, it's not actually just for us. But all of that is for Christ. We serve together that Christ may be magnified. We suffer together that Christ may be glorified. We share experiences together that Christ may be beatified. And we are sanctified together that Christ may be exemplified. These are relationships that reflect Christ. They cause unbelievers to want to know him, but they also cause believers to anticipate the fullness of their relationship with God that they'll have one day fully realized in heaven. And so we have to ask, will we be content with relationships that steer us away from Christ or relationships that steer us towards Christ? Let's pray. Our Father God, you are the one who first served. You served by, by suffering on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ, by sharing him and sharing that experience of his death and burial and resurrection. And as a result of that, we're now sanctified. All of this occurs first and foremost by you. And so by that act, we're now connected to you, trusting in that work, having faith in its sufficiency, Lord. The result of that is that now you have allowed us to serve you, to suffer for you, to share experiences, and ultimately be sanctified. Father, we see that in the relationships in this text, and Father, I pray that you would allow your Son to permeate our relationships, that they may be reflected through that. Father, magnify yourself in our relationships with one another. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.